Frustrated. I'm Ryan Whedon. I'm Matt Fisher. Time to talk movies. <laughs> it is that time. We'll, we'll set aside the conversation about our astounding medical breakthroughs for a different podcast. <laughs> Today it's movies. Yeah. Uh, so, sorry if you have cancer. You'll have to wait. <laughs> yeah, you know, one more day of chemo won't kill you. Yeah. <laughs> I know it feels like it's it's killing you, but it's actually helping you. So. And killing you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Put your wine in, I guess. Oh, God. <laughs> Good start. Good start. This is going to be worse than that time I offended stubborn people. That took forever to sort out. <laughs> so over the weekend, we lost two sort of big cinema giants. Sort of on either end of the spectrum. But That's true. We lost uh, horror great George A. Romero. Zombie inventor. Basically, basically, yeah. You know, you think about, you know, other big monster horror icons, you know, your Dracula's, your Frankensteins, your Wolfmans and Mummies and things. Mm-hmm. And those, like, by the time they hit the movies, they already had, like, an established mythology to build upon. Right. Like, you knew sort of what the look and the feel was because there was already, you know, stories. And it's like, while well, the concept of a zombie, you know, existed before Night of the Living Dead, what we think of, like, all the way through, like, even, like, Walking Dead... Right. ...really stems from that movie. Right. Like, Night of the Living Dead sort of single-handedly created that zombie culture. Yeah, and it set up all the, like, uh, rules for zombies, too. Yeah. You know, like, getting bitten by one turns you right. into a zombie and, like, just the whole the whole thing. Yeah. That was him. Yeah. Um, if George Romero were to come back as a zombie, who do you think it would be the, like, best person for him to bite to turn into a zombie? Edgar Wright? (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking, who is already a mindless copycat? (laughs) Um, who's that guy that directs the Rush Hour movies? Because he's, like, Michael Bay without the pizzazz. Brett Ratner. <laughs> there you go. Best known for the third X-Men movie. Oh, the worst one. Uh, the Rush Hour franchise. Uh, he did a Hercules movie. He did Red Dragon. Yeah, you know, the next Spielberg is what I'm <laughs> basically describing here. Sad. We, who was uh, the other pillar that we lost? The other one's Martin Landau. All right. Let's shoot this fucker. Who led a long, rich life. You know, right. he was in North by Northwest. I was going to say, I was surprised to find out he was still alive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, As of yesterday. You know, when he won Best Supporting Actor for uh, Bella Lugosi and Ed Wood, mm-hmm. he had some stiff competition that year. That was the year that, you know, uh, Samuel Jackson was nominated uh, for oh, Pulp Fiction. Right. I'm trying real hard. The shepherd as supporting character, yeah. Well, that's wrong, but yeah, because <laughs> John Travolta got nominated for lead actor. Oh, come on, <laughs> yeah, man. The 90s just weren't as woke as you think, <laughs> right? Jeez, um, that was also the year that Gary Sinise got nominated for playing Lieutenant Dan in Force Gun. You call this a storm? You know, there were some powerhouse performances. You know, you can yeah. say what you will about Force Gump as a movie, but uh. He had some stiff competition, and you know, 
I love Ed Wood, and I think he is great in it. I do too. Uh, I so, mean, it's it's probably Tim Burton's best movie. It could be, yeah. It's super good, and there's so many people who haven't seen it. Yeah, well, because it was sort of a sleeper hit. Like it came out like between his Batman and like you know his weirder you know Edward Scissorhands foray. Yeah. So it was sort of like his normal film or normal-ish film, right? But, which is too bad because it is it is solid. I mean, it also makes a case for Tim Burton just being able to direct a relatively straightforward movie, right? Yeah, to success. Yeah, indeed. And emotional, yeah. Like that final or that one sh- shot of Martin Landau doing doing that final scene with the fake octopus yeah. screaming and having it move. It's like sad. Yeah, and action. And then, yeah, he's, like, sitting in the cold water, and he, like, looks around, and he goes, I turned down Frankenstein. Yeah. And, like, there's just, like, that one little moment, and then they do it, but it's, like, all the difference. Yeah, it's pretty, it's emotionally gutting. So. Well, good luck, George and Martin, wherever you are now. I hope you're doing well. And, uh, I don't know. I hope you're... Happier. Oh, jeez. I don't know what to say now. I'm ruining this. Just stick to things you know, like chemotherapy. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to do a hard swerve here. Back uh, in the safe territory. Yeah, and uh, give you an update on uh, my fanciful visit to meet Lil Bub. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was fucking awesome. <laughs> it it was... The best. To see a cat that can't close its mouth? Yeah. I literally was close to Bub for, I don't know, 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. It was it was real like, the kind of like, you get in, sit next to Mike, I chatted with him for a minute, he takes your phone, takes a selfie of you and Bub, and then like, your shoot out, and they give you a pillow. But it was like... They give you a pillow? Yeah, I got a signed pillow. Signed by who? Well, I don't think it was Bub. <laughs> She does have thumbs, but they're not opposable. Mm. Um, but I know that they were, it was actually signed because Tim got one as well, and his was his looked different. His had an exclamation point, mine didn't. So, yeah. Unless they had two different types of stamps, which would be silly. But Said the guy who traveled 60 miles to see a cat with its tongue hanging out. You know, I'm a... I'm that guy. It was it was so it was part of this like cat convention exhibition slash exhibition in Tacoma, mm. and so part of paying for the ticket was we got to uh, go in to the exhibition and see all these cats. Um, and it was definitely we walked in and it was definitely like forty to fifty something year old women mm-hmm. with like you know vests that had cat print on them and mm. things like that. Lots of like leopard print and things. Um, and at first I was uncomfortable, but then I realized these, these are, are my people. people. <laughs> it was, it was thrilling. And I, it was fun to watch like the few, the people in front of us in line go out and see Bub and then like come out just beaming. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the joy of Bub. She, um, she brings joy wherever she goes. Now Bub, is that short for something? I don't think so. Okay. I mean, typically it's short for Bubba, yeah, which is a boy's name, mm. and you keep saying it's a she. Yeah. Well, Bub is also the name of the zombie in uh, Day of the Dead. Did they, oh, did they name it? I think they name it Bub. 
Oh, I don't remember that. Yeah. Bring I, everything full circle. I was going to say, I've seen, I saw Dawn of the Dead about two years, or rewatched about two years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that movie's still awesome. That's the one where they're in the mall, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think I've seen Night of the Living Dead since I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And it was very much like I was playing Sims at one in the morning <laughs> and it came on like USA. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I definitely remember it being very strange and like eerie to have like just playing in the background. Yeah. So, it's a good movie. It is good. Especially for like the time period it was like 1969, I think. Yeah. Or 68. Yeah. And the uh, main characters are, are like lead characters, a black guy. Yeah. Punches a woman in the face. Yeah. White woman. Oof. That was a big deal back then. Yeah. Because they wrote the character assuming that they just get a white actor. Yeah. Like they didn't write the character to be black. And then during an audition, they're just like, I like this guy. Let's make this guy the lead. Right, yeah. And so they get to that part, and I was like, oh, this might get us in trouble. <laughs> but because it was only showing in, like, you know, grindhouse cinema stuff, they thought that they could get away with it, and they yeah, did. Yeah, like, totally. So. Um, did you know I was in a zombie movie? Yes. Uh, you showed it to me back when we were dating. Oh, okay. <laughs> you showed me the scene that you were in. Yeah. It's available online now. Snow day, bloody snow day. Google it. Just showing off your IMDb credits. <laughs> My one and only. Actually, I have two. Yeah. <laughs> I was the sound engineer on. A Chris Catan vehicle. <laughs> Scout's honor. Badge to the bone. I can't recommend that one. <laughs> um... Wait, are you saying that your indie zombie movie was of higher quality than SNL alum Chris Kattan? Look, I think my work speaks for itself. that you run out of uh, toilet paper, tissues, and paper towels all at the same time? Mmm, yes. Also, you know, they sell hot, hot dogs. dogs. And packets of eight, but buns and packets of ten and twelve. You need to buy like 90 just to even it out. And our film today is a work of fiction. That's right. But it's called True Stories. It's, uh, it's a movie directed... <laughs> it's a movie... Directed by David Byrne mm-hmm. of uh, Talking Heads fame mm-hmm. uh, from 1986. Is it that early? Yeah. Oh, for some reason I thought it was like 91, 92. No, yeah, it's oh. from the 80s. Okay. Um, he got a lot of leeway in making this movie uh, from the success of Stop Making Sense, mm-hmm. the Jonathan mm-hmm. Demi movie, uh, which is just like a live concert uh, situation. It's a great movie. I definitely recommend that if you... One, if you oh, haven't yeah. seen it, stop making sense. Is great it's, performance art. Yeah, and it's super fun to watch, and it's also a uh, tour de force of editing because that's like three days worth of editing. I think, and it basically. seems just like one concert. Yeah, so it's good. Check it out. Um, but anyway, because that was such a runaway success, Warner Brothers was like, "Yeah, go ahead and make a movie." And then he made this, and they were flummoxed as to how to market this thing <laughs> which rightfully so if i was in the the ad and marketing department and this came you know rolling in i don't know how yeah. i'd be able to 
I didn't sell this. I didn't watch the trailer for it, but I can't. I I would definitely be hitting my head on, against the desk if I was in the marketing department. So you talking about how Stop Making Sense was this runaway hit? I firmly like categorize David Byrne as like an artist. Me too. I think he's one of the a very important American artist. Yes, period. I I, yeah. I definitely agree, and I'm a big fan of Talking Heads music. Me too. And boy, I just don't remember like an artist of that level since like getting big in a very mainstream way in yeah. different types of like creativity and art. Yeah. And not feeling compromised by that success. Yeah. Like I think he was he's really good at he he was really good at taking that success and just like spreading Taking the platform and just, like, spreading his art bigger. Yeah. You know, making it bigger, basically. Because when you watch true stories, you're like, oh, yeah, this is made by the guy from Talking Heads. <laughs> yeah. Like, there's no mistaking it. Yeah. Uh, so it's like he was able to take that, like, same, you know, flavor from his music and, like, turn it into a movie. Right. Uh, which is sort of a feat into itself. Yeah. It's 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 an oddball movie uh, that... Um, also serves as maybe kind of a uh, marketing strategy for the rec for the album True Stories. I'm not sure which came first in that department. Yeah, or if it was a sort of like a Dance in the Dark Selma songs, thing, right? Where it was music written for the movie, right? Yeah. Um, but I I think the songs in it are great. Yeah, I mean, True Stories isn't my favorite album by the Talking Heads, but there are some really good songs on there. And apparently, uh, David Byrne wanted to, wanted to release True Stories under the moniker of Talking Heads, but have it the recordings be of these people that sing it in the movie oh, okay. actually being on the recording. So oh. you would have had like uh, Pop Staples singing that one song, um, and then. Uh, you know, John Goodman singing. Yeah. So, like, that would, would be the album under the moniker of Talking Heads, but Warner Brothers was like, no, that's not going to fly. <laughs> and so they had to go and record with David Byrne's vocals, which is fine. I mean, like, there's... I love, like, Love for Sale is a great song. Um, Wild Wild Life is a yeah. classic. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's great ones. And that's what uh, I think really makes this movie kind of, kind of fun. It, it's weird to have it's almost like we're watching music videos at certain points sure like but doing wild wild life like yeah. in the mall like yeah and how it's like cutting between yeah the different people singing and stuff like that like that really felt like a music video yeah I think it is I think that was the music video that they used that would make sense yeah and um normally that feels like something I would hate I'd be mm. like like it feels like this weird marketing thing but it's really fun in this movie. Like, Wild Wild Life is the first musical number we have, mm -hmm. and uh, it's great mm -hmm. once it starts going. You get to see all these different body types yeah. lip-syncing to it, and um, a prince impersonator. Yeah. <laughs> um, I still, to this day, can't hear that song without picturing John Goodman do the, like, <laughs> you wrestle, and then, like, spinning his fists. Uh, it's so. I mean, this means that it like predated even like Roseanne, like for John Goodman. Yeah, this was really early in his career, um, and and so you know we're always praising the ladies on this podcast, but I think John Goodman is a really underrated actor. So I was thinking that it was really great to have John Goodman in this because he's such a charismatic actor. Yeah, that 
you know, in lesser hands, the movie might have been boring under the weight of a less talented actor. He's he's got screen presence to him, mm-hmm. and I he's think got amazing kind of, physicality to him too for being such a big guy too. Yeah, he know he knows he's aware of his body. He uses it really well. Um, he's got a very expressive face, uh-huh. but yeah, he's just like a real sympathetic yeah. character. He's kind of he's he's that, and that's sort of the plot, I guess, of this movie. Has a plot is we're following him in, in his romantic yeah. travels. I don't know. Um, yeah, the movie, especially near the beginning, because it has, like, with David Byrne when he's, like, introducing the city, mm-hmm. and there's sort of this Philip Glass score, it kind of reminded me of Errol Morris documentaries from this period of time. Yeah. Like, Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, or Burn in Florida, uh, where it's just sort of a documentary on, like, oddball people in a small southern town. Right. Um, and then, you know, uh, Errol Morris always uses Philip Glass... Right. Uh, this so, was Meredith Monk, if that. Oh, was it? Oh, okay. Yeah, so. uh, and yeah, so it kind of gave me that vibe to it. Like he had seen some of those right. Morris documentaries, and he was like, I want to do something like that, but I just want to make it up. Yeah. Like, A lot of credit for this movie, I think, needs to go to the director of photography, okay. uh, whose name is Ed. I'm going to guess Lackman, L-A-C-H-M-A-N. Okay. Who, uh, for a period in the '80s, apparently was just like. Anytime it's an experimental director who wanted to do something, so he did stuff with like Vim Benders, he did mm. stuff with uh, Werner Herzog. Okay. And uh, most recently, he did the last few Todd Haynes movies. So he did oh. like Far From Heaven, oh. Mildred Pierce, and Carol. He's a director oh. of photography. So, Crazy. Yeah, and I think that that adds a whole lot to this movie. Like, mm-hmm. there's a lot of really beautiful establishing shots. Mm-hmm. Just really beautiful Even filming. Even beginning with just, like, the little girl, like, dancing yeah, on the dirt road. Yeah, The yeah. horizon, like, is directly through the middle line of the screen, and, like, the top is all big blue sky, and then you have, like, the road, which is almost a triangle, and then two green right, triangles. The, the perspective. Like, yeah, and it's, it almost looks like an abstract painting that this little girl is dancing through a little sure, bit. Sure, yeah. Um, it's just, he's got a beautiful eye. There's a really great shot also of them on in a car, and he's just like he basically just has the camera turned to the side, I guess, and you see like the freeways as they're going through a big freeway interchange, mm-hmm. and David Byrne calls them. They're the cathedrals of our time, someone said. It's an ordinary, everyday thing that mm-hmm. I'm sure people pass all the time, but mm-hmm. it manages to become beautiful the way that they're filming it. Yeah, I think it's shortly after that where, because uh, I think that's in the chapter called "Shopping Is a Feeling." Uh huh. Uh, and I like the way that he talks about how malls have replaced the town center. Yeah. Or like the town square. Yeah. And it's like shopping is now a social event. Right. Which the way that he said that, I was like, was there a point where it wasn't? <laughs> uh, and I was like, oh, I guess like before like these mini malls and shopping malls and strip malls came about, I was like, I guess you kind of would just like shop by yourself mostly. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and he talks about it, and they're, like, they go through that mall, and it's like, you know, everyone's talking and gabbing and shopping together and getting fro-yo. And... Yeah. <laughs> going to the Gap. Yeah. Uh, it's so nostalgic for me now to see a mall interior. Yeah. Because, like, I can't even tell you the last time I set foot inside a big interior mall like that. And um, it's cool because he, he kind of lets the camera... Like, David, the shot inside the mall is of him, David Byrne walking through it. But then there's cutaways of just, like, what the mall looks like, you yeah. know? And it's not, 
It's something that I would normally see as kind of ugly, but somehow they managed to make it kind of just beautiful in a way. It's when he's driving up to the mall and he's talking about it and he's like, you know, consumers no longer have to trust the, the vendor. They can peruse for themselves or something. Yeah. And he says, and I love this line, and I don't even know why I love it. He goes, you know what I mean? Or do you? I love it. I love yeah. it. Yeah. There's some funny there's some funny little moments like that too where so there's lots of shots of him driving the car, but it's with um like he's doing it in front of a screen, right? And the screen is like makes it look like he's driving. Yeah. Uh showing footage of him on the road. And there's one I'm not exactly sure what the line is, but he's like moving the steering wheel around a lot. It's just like Yep. It's fancy driving, alright. Just like clearly showing the artifice of it. I don't know. It's and it's funny. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it has any other point than to be funny. What do you think David Byrne is like if you were just to sit and talk with him? Do you think he, he, he you can have like a straightforward conversation or do you think he'd artify it? Like? <laughs> I was, there was a couple of times I was trying to picture what it would be like to, you know, be hanging out with him and say like before they got big, like in 70s New York or something like that. Mm-hmm. Just like you're at a show and then he shows up and you're kind of friends because you've seen each other around the neighborhood or something like mm-hmm. what would talking with him be like yeah. <laughs> i don't i don't even i can't even imagine yeah and i mean what makes sort of david Byrne and i mean talking heads to a large extent great is that it's like yeah they're like an art rock band but they weren't like other art rock bands yeah they're very accessible yo super yeah super accessible like it's like they tried to apply you know portions of andy warhol's principles to their music yeah uh to success. I mean, they had a number of big hits. Totally, yeah. They they really crossed over from, like, art rock or whatever into yeah. huge commercial success. Yeah, and you never really get the feeling that they sold out or compromised. Yeah, yeah, which is so cool. Like, they wanted, like, they liked making pop songs, so they did it, and they were good at it, and they yeah. got hits from it. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, they, they channeled that into saying, like, leverage and saying, I, I want to make a movie now. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, here's money. Yeah. It's sort of like, you know, how people talk about, like, classical music and, uh, like, wallpaper. Like, they listen to it at work and, like, never anyplace else. Right. And it's like, but that's sort of what's nice about it is, like, it can be wallpaper, but then if you choose to pay attention to it, it's, Mm -hmm. like, very rewarding wallpaper. It's like Brian Eno's ambient music. Sure. (laughs) And I kind of feel like that's how this movie is. Like, if it's on and you're not really paying attention to it, you don't, I mean, you don't need to. Right. It's not like if you miss a couple minutes of it that you're not going to know what's going on. Right, because there isn't a the plot. Is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you can sit and watch, and each little vignette is rewarding in its own way. Yeah. The uh, Yeah, there's like that scene, and this is so stupid. I've, I've seen this movie a couple times now, and I don't think I've ever noticed it. But there's a couple that they're filming, they're just walking, and it's like, I, I love you, and like I feel like I'm going crazy. And it's like, well, if this is what crazy feels like, then I don't ever want to be saying blah, blah. It's kind of cheesy. Mm-hmm. And then they kiss, and then they walk a little more, and the girl just goes, Oh, did you fart? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've ever noticed that before. <laughs> um, and it's like, you don't have to see that to enjoy this movie, but it's just a nice little silly touch. Yeah. It's kind of fun. <laughs> uh, one thing, so one of my favorite things about this, and I found it so oddly moving this time around, and I mean, like, I, I cried. I was, like, bawling like a baby during the scene. Is oh. when, is the fashion show. For some reason, 
Really? Like, yeah. I loved it, but I definitely... That was not the emotions I was having it, during it, like, the fashion show. It moved me for some reason, and I think it, it has something to do with, like... I mean, A, that song, The Dream Operator, is really is a pretty song, mm-hmm. and that... There's just something about the line that from that song that's, you know, this is your story. Like, everybody is writing their own story as they live their life, mm-hmm. and, like, you can dream something and then turn it into reality. Uh, and then while you're also seeing these crazy costumes and fashion pieces that are ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, they're not, they're, they're no, they're no Versace, yeah. that's for sure. <laughs> there's one where it's like, there's a woman who looks like a column. Yeah. And then like the two guys on the outside look like bricks. Yeah, they're wearing like a brick printed suits. Yeah. And then like, by the end, the, these women come out wearing these enormous headpieces that are like six feet tall. Like one of them tips over. You're right, yeah. And it's funny. But like the whole, I don't know, it has something to do with like if given the opportunity to just create for creation's sake uh-huh. look at what we can come up with. This is so cool, you know? like Plant tuxedos. Yes! And- a, a, a giant lily pad on your head. Yeah. I, I a wedding cake. That, that fashion show, like, was one of my favorite parts of the movie, but I definitely had a, the, a very different emotional reaction <laughs> than you did to it. But either way, I mean, it was like, it was almost, like, overwhelming joy, I guess, maybe. Mm-hmm. It's just this feeling of, like, this is, this is very representative of goodness in people, okay. maybe. Of what we can be like. Later, this did not make me cry, this made me laugh a lot, was when uh, Susie, Susie Kurtz is, plays a woman who doesn't ever leave the bed because of all of modern conveniences are, are brought to her. Yeah. And she's flipping channels. Yeah. And uh, she eventually lands on um, the Love for Sale video, the Talking Heads video. Yeah. But she's kind of like talking over it. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to sit and watch TV with her when she's like yelling, <laughs> yelling at the TV. Yeah, for some reason, like, her, she doesn't, I mean, she literally, like, does nothing. Yeah. Like, she has food spoon-fed to her via machine, and she, like, goes through, yeah, she, like, channel serves, and, like, kind of tells her servant butler person to do various things. Right. Really, she just lays there. Yeah. But for some reason, all those scenes are oddly entertaining. Yeah, I mean, she's she's acting up a storm, I think. <laughs> uh, that's fun. That's part of it. Um, and uh, she eventually she eventually is the one that marries John Goodman in the end because mm-hmm. she sees his ad, which is yeah. which is more good acting on his part because it's like it's kind of hard to act like you're serious, but clearly uncomfortable with being serious, you know? So it's a hard it's a hard medium he kind of reaches there. I'm six foot, three inches tall, and maintain a very consistent panda bear shape. There's a line near the beginning when they're going through... I don't even know what the company does. It's some sort of... Oh, Veritech? Yeah. Veracore. Veracore, like, technology of some sort. Yeah. So the guy giving the tour through this technology thing says something like, you know technology is a rhythm or mm-hmm. the, you know something to that effect and he looks at the camera and goes Steve Jobs said that he used to be the head of Apple 
I love that. Like I like was Steve Jobs already kicked out in '86? I guess so. Yeah. Oof. Then they brought him back. That was like a decade later, though. They had the Newton to go through first. <laughs> what? Is it? Uh, beat up. Uh, oh yeah, beat up Martin. <laughs> and it changes it to eat up Martin or yeah. something. <laughs> eat up Martha. Hey, Dolph, take a member on your Newton. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that tickled you just right. I forgot about that. Eat up Martha. Bam! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's fine. Uh. Yeah, I like, so that's a good point, because uh, this movie is 100% a product of its time. Sure. Like, almost in a way where it's it feels like David Byrne is trying to uh, capture the time, you know? Mm-hmm. You get, because uh, you get, like, commercials from the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get, like, the buildings, those, the, like, the Veracorp building is looks like an 80s corporate yes, building. definitely. From the outside. Um and just you know the 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 style, you get just some shots of just people hanging out. There's uh-huh. like the when the parade goes by, when it's all done, he just throws in a bunch of shots of just people watching the like looking left, watching the parade. Uh-huh. Um, and you just kind of get an idea of what they're wearing, what their hairstyle was. It's like it's not really doing anything besides showing us what was going on. Yeah, know? like what people looked like. Yeah. Same thing with the Wild Wildlife video when they're all going up on, we get all sorts of different shapes and sizes and different fashions and different yeah. haircuts and things like that, you know? Yeah. It's kind of, it's, it's, uh, it's cool because then it trans, it transports you back to that time period, but it also kind of transcends that time period. Yeah. Uh, cause I definitely enjoyed this more watching it the second time around. And I think because watching it this time, I was a little bit more sensitive to, the culture that he was sort of capturing. Mm-hmm. So watching it this time, kind of knowing a little bit more about what was going on, what was going to happen, uh, I think really helped me enjoy what it was. That it was sort of a mockumentary of sorts. Yeah, and sort of just like a meditation on modern day, or at the, at the time, modern day America. Yeah. You know? Did you know that he cast 50 sets of twins as extras and other people in this movie. Really? Yeah. And it's it's one of those things where it's like you'll you'll catch it once in a while and be like, oh, there's two twins there. Um, but uh, most of the time you don't even notice it. But it's just sort of like hmm. adding this weird little element of homogenization. Or maybe, yeah, I'm not exactly sure what the comment is, but uh um it's just funny to think that that's what he would do and then never comment on he it. He just liked the Doubleman gum ad so much that he didn't want <laughs> they to They were big in the 80s, yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know. I just feel like that's one of those layers like uh, Francis Ford Coppola did with the Senators in Godfather 2. That, uh, you might not know it, but um, it like comes across. It's sort of like... I don't know, like a like an artist using a special kind of canvas, sure. maybe like their their bed sheet that they like uh, slept with somebody on, and then they're using that as their canvas. It's like you wouldn't you wouldn't know know about it until you've read about it, and then it's yeah. like, oh, that's what makes it special. My mom dated a photorealist, and he said that oftentimes what he would do to get the color right is he would paint the whole thing, 
and then he'd take it in the shower and let just the water run over it for a couple hours. Mm -hmm. Then he'd let the canvas dry and repaint it. And that's how he would get the shading right and the color just the way that he wanted it. And there's no way you could know that from looking at the painting. Totally, yeah. Uh, But yeah, so he essentially had to paint the same picture twice, uh, but it was all worth it to get that (laughs) color correct. It's so cool. I mean, it's like those little details that uh, can elevate something. It's almost like, so, I don't know if you've ever, did you ever read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance? No, did you? I did, yeah. You used to read a lot. Though. I'm a reader, yeah, I was poor, <laughs> so, <laughs> I read a lot. Uh, but, um, like, that's one of the, kind of the tenets of that, of that book, is that, like, like, how do you define quality? Uh-huh. Um, and I think about this often, I go back to it a lot, but it's just, like, it's kind of a measure of like what you put into it, you know, and it doesn't matter if somebody knows that it's there, but if you know that you did it mm-hmm. and that that adds to it, that's kind of all that, all that matters. Yeah. Um, and I feel like little touches like casting 50 sets of twins, it just automatically adds a quality level to it, whether, whether or not you're, you're blaring it out to everybody, you know? Yeah. Um, and that totally seems like a David Byrne thing to do, you know? <laughs> That's just his brain, right? He's he's great at kind of thinking creatively, but in ways that are accessible. Yeah, he doesn't do encores. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he feels that, like, the show is its own sort of unique universe and experience. Mm-hmm. And to, like, leave and come back, like, breaks it. Mm. So he just, you know, blows his wad the first time. <laughs> Uh, bring ring gear. <laughs> it's something kind of weird at the end of this movie. Like, I love the the parade, and we get, like, you know, we get the lawnmower brigade in there, we get the Shriners in their little cars, we get an accordion marching band, and it's all, like, pretty fast. Like, we're just, like, rushed through that mm-hmm. a little bit. And then it cuts to the big talent show that they've been talking about and they built a stage for. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this entire talent show is just a big montage yeah. of really cool looking acts. I mean, like we get, we get to see all of one act and mm-hmm. that's the weird uh, auctioneers and yodeler with the, with the lasso. I remember thinking that uh, this is the part that we're going to write for Liv Tyler. <laughs> I was thinking about Liv Tyler too. <laughs> That's a, oh, that's how we can start it off. She was in the audience for that. <laughs> She's from Virgil, Texas. And, uh, yeah, that inspired her to become a... Uh... So our Liv Tyler auctioneer movie will be a spin-off of True Stories? Yeah. screen like this. So, of John Goodman's dates in this movie, uh-huh. which one did you like the best? <laughs> So we got the like the one girl who thinks that he's too sad in his heart because of the sad country song that right. he wrote. <laughs> you just can't have enough sweetness in this world. We got the girl that he ends up with who sees his personal ad on TV. Live at five. And then we have the Lying psychic woman. girl who wrote all of Elvis's songs. I believe that part of my extra psychic abilities connected up with the fact that I was born with a tail. 
There's also don't forget the woman with lots of children at the Chinese restaurant. <laughs> do you know all the kids' names by now? Oh, uh, what are they sitting alphabetically? I... Okay, so honestly, I don't really like the lying woman in this movie. She's really, really annoying. <laughs> I was just thinking, I was like... Although, I, I go back and forth. She's kind of funny, I too. was sitting there, I was like, I wonder if anyone's just told her to her face, you're lying. <laughs> like, how long do I just let you be wrong? She's obviously got some issues. Uh, but uh, that one is is a lot of fun to watch, mainly because there's uh, some really great reaction shots from uh, <laughs> John Goodman. to do. He's just uncomfortable. Okay. Like... Uh, really fun, fun acting from him. And actually, I mean, honestly, she's she's a lot of fun too. Don't, I, I guess I take that back. Um, I just find liars annoying. But she, she, the actress, and is playing it really well. Yeah, but like his one day where she's like, "Sing me one of your country songs." And <laughs> he does. In 1950, when I was born. Papa, I haven't written this verse quite yet. Six feet tall and size twelve shoes. But people like us, we don't want freedom. We meow 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 meow. We just want someone. To love. Is that really how you feel? I can't have that kind of sadness in my life. <laughs> oh my god, it wasn't even that. And then when, because that's the song that he does right at the end, and it's not even that sad when like the music's there with it. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, she missed out. His band is called the Country Bachelors, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny. I uh, I like the line he has in that date when he's he's. She asked him about that, and he says, Maybe I am kind of sad. I like sad songs. They make me want to lie on the floor. I do that sometimes. Mm-hmm. I'll put on a sad song and just lay down mm-hmm. on the floor, face <laughs> down, a la um, George Michael from Arrested Development. At the very end of the Love for Sale video, mm-hmm. Susie Kurtz says, I think they're selling something. And uh, I couldn't help but think, like, if that's a dig at Warner Brothers a little bit for, like... Because this movie is a product. Sure. When you think about it, right? It has to... It, it is... To Warner Brothers, it's a product. It was meant to capitalize upon the success of... Right. A different David Byrne project. Um, and then, you know, they're also thinking of, like, okay, well, this is also an album that we're going to, like, synergize with this and sell, cross-promote, blah, blah, blah. It's just savvy... And uh, kind of subversive to throw that in to a movie like this on David Byrne's part to say, like, don't be fooled. This is a product Mm -hmm. and you are a consumer for for buying it. And like, yes, it can have emotions, but it's like, yeah, I'm also selling you something. Yeah. You know, and uh, I mean, that sort of makes sense because, I mean, it's not like David Byrne was shy about making pop songs. Yeah. Or, you know was unaware of the, you know, effects, you know, of uh, sort of a, you know, well-placed marketing campaign or something like that. You right. Know, he was a avid music video uh, maker. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, he knew about, like, the power of promotion and things like that. Yeah. So And just because somebody buys your stuff doesn't mean you're selling out. Sure. You know? Um, I just think that's a... That's a uh, 
savvy move on his part and uh, made me think a lot just about what the behind the scenes talking was on getting this thing greenlit, you know? Um, and what they would allow. Do you think there was like producers who, who came in and they were just like, this love for sale song. I'm not so sure. <laughs> I don't know. The movie does not strike me as being compromised in any way. Mm-hmm. Like I watch it now and it, it, you know, if I didn't know that it was uh, sort of the byproduct of the success of Stop Making Sense, I would have just felt that it was a totally, you know, self-funded David Byrne project. Yeah. Because uh, that's how it feels. Yeah, it does. You're right. feels very much him. I guess because there's nothing really risky about it. Like, there's, like, if they're like, we want you to, like, make something that's like the talking heads on film, this is pretty close to that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> One last thing. So I want to talk for a minute just about the soundtrack, not the Talking Heads songs, but the songs that were selected as the rest of the incidental music on this. So there were two albums that kind of came out of this. There's one is the Talking Heads album, True Stories, which is the nine songs that the Talking Heads wrote for it. And then there's one um, called Songs from True Stories or Music for Activities Freaks, I okay. think is, is the subtitle. Okay. Um, it is, this is how I came to find this movie, was I bought the tape uh, in a used CD and tape store in Tacoma a hundred years ago, based on the fact that it was, you know, David Byrne, who I liked at the time, I was like, okay, I'll check it out. And I wore that thing out. It is oh, yeah? So, it is so good. Um, it's like me and the Friends soundtrack. <laughs> Let's see if we can do this. So no one told you life was gonna be this way. <laughs> Not bad. We'll work on it. We'll workshop it. <laughs> uh, but there's just so many good, weird... It's so eclectic and strange, and it like covers huge... Like It just covers everything. Mm-hmm. There's a really great piece by the Kronos Quartet. It's actually one of my favorite pieces of music, maybe. Okay. Um, and it, it plays when they're uh, at the dinner, when he's at the dinner scene. Okay. Um, that Meredith Monk piece is really good. Okay. Um, there's like, there's uh, uh, the Mexican band that's playing. Oh, yeah. Um, it's really great. Yeah. Uh, there's... It's, it's just a really amazing thing. It's, I wish... I could get it digitally. They, they only released it on vinyl and tape, so it's really hard to find. Some people have put it up on YouTube, so you can listen to it there. And I do, I do recommend just putting it on. It's like forty-five minutes of pure bliss. Some of David Byrne's favorite tunes, no doubt. Yeah, basically, I feel like he's just like this is what I'm listening. It's a mixtape, yeah. David Byrne mixtape from 1986. <laughs> and uh, if that doesn't excite you, stay away from this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. For next week's episode, we have a guest, mm-hmm. or guests, perhaps. But we will be having at least one representative from uh, Starboys on. Yay! Not the weekend song, but a podcast about all things 
uh, sci-fi. Yeah. And we will be talking specifically about what I believe to be the most underappreciated of the Star Trek films, Star Trek VI. The Undiscovered Country. Yes. Uh, I am so excited to talk about Star Trek. (laughs) It's... So it's widely believed that the even-numbered movies from the original series are the best ones. Mm -hmm. And of those even-numbered ones, this is like the one that I feel like people forget about. Everyone knows Wrath of Khan. And everyone knows the one with the whale. Hello, computer. But I feel like this one kind of like slides by people's radar a lot, which is unfortunate because I feel like it's just as strong as those two. It's a super strong movie, and um, this is probably my favorite probably my favorite of the original series movies. It's just got everything. It's got action, it's got adventure, it's very trekky. You know, it has this Adam Pranica idea of Star Trek is a place. Mm. I think it really fits into that okay. well. So I'm excited to watch it. So yeah, we will be having some Star Trek experts on to converse with us. It should be fun. Yeah, I'm excited. It's nerdy if nothing else. Yeah, yeah, we will nerd out hard. <laughs> Uh, let's plug our junk. Let's do it. Follow us on Twitter at, at @xratedmovies. Uh, like, subscribe, leave a rating or review. Uh, iTunes, X-rated movies. Mm-hmm. You can uh, shoot us an email. Just tell us all the things you liked or hated about this episode. X.rated.movies at gmail.com. Uh, like our Facebook page and follow us at Rated X Movies. If you want to give us money for this hot quality content, we have a Patreon. It's just uh, X-rated movies as well. I think you're sensing a pattern. Uh, yeah, anyone who uh, sets up a subscription on the Patreon will get even hotter, more qualityer content. Yeah, yum. Follow us on Instagram. Sure. X-rated movies. Maybe I'll put my bub pick up on there. You should. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely throw it on Twitter. Up, so. <laughs> Maybe that'll be our first Instagram pick. And only. Yeah, it's a good pick. I'm pretty, pretty thrilled about it. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next week. Star Trek Six: The Undiscovered Country. Country. Know what I mean? Or do you? Mm-hmm.